0: Hey, y'all, you're listening to How I Got Here with Drina Whitfield, the podcast that dives deep into the unique journeys of some of the dopest entrepreneurs, business leaders, and personalities I know. I'm your host, Drina Whitfield. I created this podcast to have real honest conversations about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Grab your notebook, sit back, relax, and catch these gems. Today I am chatting with LA-born and bred artist, freedom fighter, New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and founder of Dignity and Power Now. My girl Patrice Colors. Hey P. I'm
1: body rolling in my.
0: Skin. <laughs> it was a <laughs> delayed. <deliberate. laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> So I'm really excited to chat with you today. You know, I kind of know your origin story, but I am really excited to help share it again with folks who may not know how you got to this place where you are today. Ah. And so Patrice and I met, I want to say like four years ago, right? I don't know. Was it 2016? Three or four years ago through a mutual friend. When did the book drop?
1: 2018.
0: What year? 2018. So we met, we met maybe 2017. Okay. Right before she was about to drop her book, When They Call You a Terrorist, The Black Lives Matter memoir. And we met through a mutual friend, Darnell Moore, who is amazing in his own right. And I was introduced to Patrice to help her with PR for her personal brand, but also just for the launch of her book. And she's been my homie since then. So I'm really excited to talk to her and help, you know, introduce her to you guys. So, P, what I like to do is start the conversation, like taking it all the way back to when we were in high school. Yeah. And so I always ask when you were graduating high school, what did you write in your yearbook when it said in 10 years I will be?
1: It's such a good question. I think at that time. I definitely was like, in 10 years, I will be a freedom fighter. I I, I knew exactly what I wanted to of do. Of course you
0: did. Of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was already the high schooler, you know, that shaved my head. Like I was wearing my hair natural before it was cool. I was the high schooler that didn't wear a bra. I know I was that person. And so I, I, I was also the high schooler that was burning my bra because I was like, you know, F the establishment and F patriarchy. So I knew that in 10 years I'd be a freedom fighter. I didn't know how. I didn't know what through. I didn't know what it would look like, but I knew.
0: Of course you were burning a damn bra in high school. Like what? I mean, if y'all know Patrice, y'all already know this is how she was from day one. Defiant i remember i saw i remember you showed me like a picture of you in high school and it was like you were holding up a sign your hair was all natural and you were just looking like you were yelling at somebody i was like look at patrice already young Pete?" yes <laughs> out here <that> was- <laughs> what was your first job that really got you into activism. I know you were like, well, let actually tell me about the bus riders union. Was that your first job, you would say?
1: Okay, so my first, first, first job was working at a ride aid in Canoga mm-hmm. Park. That was my first first job, but that's important because when I worked at that job, I was like, and this is no diss to anybody who works at ride aids, you know, or or CBS's or anything like that but I was definitely like, I cannot do this. Like, this is soul sucking. This is not what I want to be doing. And I was 16 years old but at the time. I was just like, I want to be, I want to help change people's lives. I want to help change my family and community's lives. So my first like job that I would say that was, you know, on taking me on the track of being a freedom fighter, definitely the bus riders union, which is, still exists. And when I was working at the Bus Riders Union, I was specifically focusing on youth and organizing young people. And I was a young person myself. So I was bringing in young people to to make sure that we had a bus pass. A lot of young people were uh, unable to access the $20 bus pass that existed. And I was helping main uh, streamline that process And really pushing for the Metro board, uh, which was the MTA board at the time, to create a more streamlined process for young people. K through, I think it was K K through 12, definitely $20 pass. But also, if you're in college, you also got a $20 pass.
0: I mean, at that age though, P, what, I mean, I know a lot of people that weren't really trying to stand up for others or really just in that mindset. So like what, what really sparked like your, your desire to do more for others and really like become an activist at such a young age?
1: I always had a fire in my belly. I was always really disturbed by What I was experiencing in my community, um, I think watching, you know, incessant police violence, uh, watching um, so many different parts of law enforcement, probation, police, you know, jail system impact my family every day, Um, watching my mom struggle so much to put food on the table, to raise four kids by herself. I was like, this is not the way people are supposed to live. This is not This is not a life that's worth living. There has to be more than this. So I didn't know about community organizing until I got older. But once I did know about it, I was like, oh, this is the way, like, this is how you change people's lives.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter. We know it all started out of frustration over the quittal of George Zimmerman. In the shooting of Trayvon Martin, but I wanna talk to you a little bit about the impact it had. Why do you believe this one hashtag, Black Lives Matter, turned into such a movement?
1: You know, I think that in 20, I mean, I don't even wanna say 2013, but I think that when we started BLM, there was a hunger for, especially for young Black people, especially for those of us who grew up, you know around state violence, around mass incarceration, there was a hunger for us to change those conditions. We were tired of seeing Black people being killed by the police, being taken off and hauled off to jail and prisons. We were tired of watching the indignity of Black people, the uh, inhumane conditions be showcased as normal. And I think there was a deep desire to Shift what we all knew was so effed up about living inside this country, and I think that's something that was especially for those of us growing up in the eighties and nineties. And we know what the eighties and nineties looked like and felt like, and the desperation and the total neglect of our communities. I think it was like a pressure cooker, and and folks were ready to to truly rise up.
0: And when you and your two co-founders created BLM, just even came up with the concept. Did y'all ever imagine that it would get to where it is today?
1: No, (laughs) no, no. I don't think, I don't think any of us did. And, you know, I think it's, you know, important just, just for this podcast for folks to know that I'm no longer with the organization Black Lives Matter, but obviously there's a larger movement and, I never saw, you know, never Mm. thought the larger movement would be so massive and so big and also resonate across the world. You know, you you know, because you went with, you came to be with me to Australia to receive the Sydney Priest Prize and you saw the, 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 how much Black Lives Matter meant for people around the world. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's powerful to see Black Lives Matter in Canada and the UK and, you know, the folks in Australia. They don't have a Black Lives Matter, but they have used that framework to fight police violence. Um, One of the young women that we met there, Latoya, she's been fighting for her brother, you know, justice for her brother who was killed when he was in custody. Um, They put a spit spit hood over his head and he choked. And she's now getting spit hoods banned in Australia. And it's, it's this work of so many of us, you know, so many mostly black women who have changed the conditions for our communities. And I think that's, what's, you know, so powerful. Um, and I, and I, I don't think we realized that it was, it would resonate the way it did, but I'm so glad it did. And I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, thinking back went to when we went to Australia, remember how they were like just so welcoming to you yes. and just like the Black Lives Matter movement in theory, right? But when we were on the ground, it was like a completely different reality. Yes. So they were welcoming yes. to you and the movement, but the the people who actually lived there were yes. like, this shit is still wild.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was really. I think it was such sort a of trip. We were like,
0: happening?" Uh,
1: exactly, and I feel like I've seen that across the com- the world. Actually, you know, where I've been in um, the UK, you know, literally talking to reporters and being and them laughing at Black Lives Matter folks inside of their mm-hmm. own country and being like, "Can you believe that they started a Black Lives Matter here?" You know, can you believe that they have you know they're doing this work and 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 think that it's just as bad as the United States and me having to be like no it, it is and these are the reasons why it's also bad here in this country and why you should be standing up for Black Lives.
0: Yeah, just thinking about how it's had like na- the international acceptance, you know, on paper. When it comes to like being here, home in the U.S., like how do you? How have you personally dealt with like the dual sides of the BLM movement in your work? So there's folks that support and will go all in, but then I'm sure there's a mass of, I mean, I know because I've, I've been with you where you've gotten death threats. You had to have security, but how do you, I guess, maintain a sense of mental stability in the midst of all that? Because people don't understand how like hard this is on you personally.
1: Mm-hmm. Having a really strong community of support, <laughs> you know, like having my family and friends who like love me and support me. I think also just doing normal ass shit, you know, just just living my life and not allowing that kind of stuff to disrupt it. I think also just being, you know, connected. And staying connected, it's really easy when you are in this world and, and you have 24 hour security and, you know, to not feel connected to people. And it's a very important for me, like, and then the work I'm doing now, you know, with Cren- with the Crenshaw Dairy Mart and with my art practice and, and now, you know, working on television and film, I I feel like it, it keeps me Come connected to, to human beings. <laughs> thanks it keeps me connected to human being, and it keeps me motivated to stay connected
0: mm-hmm. what's the crenshaw dairy market
1: the crenshaw dairy mart is one of my favorite places in the whole wide world it's a former liquor store in inglewood that we've converted into an artist gallery um and we're working with people you know across south central and in inglewood uh, to develop this really beautiful art space that speaks to the community and speaks to its needs. We've been, you know, uh, building out this amazing pod called the abolitionist pod. We built built one earlier this year for the MOCA, which is a, the museum of contemporary art here in Los Angeles. And now we're building a new one for uh, the Care First village, which is a transitional housing village. And the abolitionist pod is actually a literal geometric dome which creates a vertical garden where we can, you know, plant like 2000 plants in it. It's been really healing mm-hmm. to be able to do that work, especially, you know, amongst one of probably the hardest years of my life. Yeah.
0: Because I mean, at the at your core, you're an artist and a lot of people don't know that. Um, mm-hmm. But Patrice is an artist, y'all. I've seen her perform a few times and this is what, truly makes her happy um where she has those belly laughs and that big-ass smile, <laughs> and it, she's extremely passionate about it. And so now that you've kind of pivoted from working day-to-day within the BLM network, what is your hope for, you know, just your, your path forward? What are you really passionate about right now?
1: Yeah, Then thank you. I know so many people don't know that I'm an artist, but more and more people are realizing that I'm an artist and seeing my work and seeing my practice. But my my main thing right now is just like using art and being and developing Black creatives and supporting my work as an artist, as a Black creative, but also other work, other other Black creatives work, especially inside of my city, especially inside of of this county here in Los Angeles. That feels really important to me. I think Black creativity is the epicenter of how we heal and transform and evolve our societies.
0: Is that kind of why you wanted to write a memoir? Was that the driving force behind you sitting down and writing When They Call You a Terrorist of Black Lives Matter
1: memoir? Yeah, I think the biggest reason why I wrote that memoir was to intervene on this idea of who we were you know, both me, but also our movement and also give people a full understanding of like how someone could create a movement like BLM, how someone could create an organization like BLM because of what I experienced and give, give people more space to see my humanity and others humanity.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that I really loved about that book is because, you know, people will see you on surface level, they'll see you on TV, they'll see you out in these streets, but they don't re- truly. I think the book showed a glimpse, a glimpse into who you truly are. It gave your backstory and introduced you to your family, and which I think honestly has been the driving force befin- behind the work that you do every day. And I, I also think that's why it was extremely successful. I know you recently released. A youth version. Why was this version important to you?
1: Yeah, you know, I really I've been working with young people since I was a young person, and I really wanted to release a, a YA version of the book so that other young people could feel moved by it and grounded by it. And every chapter ends with a set of questions. I have my journal entries from when I was a, a child and my journal. We we broke out the young Patrice journals. And then also like images for my journals and my family. And so it's really, feels like an archival book. It felt really special to be able to release it.
0: And you have a new book coming out, right? 2022?
1: Oh, I do, January 25th, 2022. An abolitionist handbook. Yes, yes. Wait,
0: January 25th, 2022? Yep. That's the
1: date? Yep.
0: And so it's, I read that it's a framework for everyday activists, right? So why was it, what sparked you creating this this new handbook?
1: Yeah, I wrote this handbook because honestly, abolition is at the center of every single thing I do, you know, whether it's art, whether it's activism, whether it's TV show writing. Like, I'm always bringing an abolitionist lens to everything I do. And so it's really important for me to break down what abolition is. I chose not to write like a a highbrow academic book, instead, I wrote something that was really about. How to offer folks this opportunity to talk about abolition in relationship to how we treat each other. You know, I think it's not a surprise that I was, you know, really viciously attacked by the right wing media. But so much of that, those attacks really happened because of internal conflicts inside of our movement, inside of Black, inside of, inside for Black people. And I think if there was more of an abolitionist culture, there would have been less harm that I experienced. And I think, and for so many, there's so many Black leaders, Black women leaders, and Black male leaders who are experiencing harm every single day because of internal issues. And I I just don't think we have a really good framework. And I think abolition can be that framework.
0: Right. When you say internal issues, what what does that mean for someone who may not know? Just like Is it miscommunication, lack of communication? Sometimes, you know, with movements and just organizations, period, there's too many chiefs and not enough, Mm -hmm. you know, supporters. Do you feel like that's what those internal issues are or
1: have been? Yeah. You know, I think with with any movement, like you said, and any organization, there's always conflict. So conflict isn't the issue. Conflict can be about anything and everything. And you know this you know, given the work that we did together. Conflict can be people feeling jealous because one person's being, you know, given an opportunity and another person isn't. A conflict can be someone feels upset because, you know, the organization isn't doing what it said it was going to do or it's not moving quick enough for you. So there's so many reasons for conflict. And I think those details are less important. But what's more important is that Mm -hmm. we don't know how to deal with conflict. And that's not just a movement issue. That's an issue across... The country. I'm even thinking of what's happening with Dave Chappelle. Um, and while, you know, the Dave Chappelle special mm-hmm. was unfortunate, more, m- mostly because I think, you know, he's in the middle of processing a lot of things he doesn't fully understand and he doesn't need a platform to process things he doesn't understand. But what's more unfortunate to me is like the backlash that, not that he's facing, but the kind of energy that gets created when we don't know how to deal with conflict. There's a lot of Disposability. There's a lot of, you know, well, F him. There's a lot of like, well, F trans people, you know, that it doesn't create more healing. When I'm thinking about like abolition, I'm thinking about abolition as a way to deal with conflict inside of movements, inside of families, inside of communities. Um, one of the first things I say in my book, one of the first principles, because it's based off of 12 principles. Um, and those principles came out of a, a write up I did for for Harvard Law Review on abolition. And, you know, the first principle is really about courageous conversations. That's the, that is the central, I believe, the central way to be in conversations with, I mean, that's the central way to be, be an abolitionist is being, being able to have courageous conversations and be able, being able to be honest with yourself and your community. But there's another part of this, which is like, you have to be able to hear that you have to be able to listen to a courageous conversation, right? You can't just talk to someone having a courageous conversation with them and then the other person not be able to accept or receive that courageous conversation. So there's a lot of reciprocity inside of abolition. And right now, the culture that we live in, which is a culture that's really based on the carceral state, the carceral systems, you know, police and prisons, we, we live in a punishment and re- revenge culture. That punishment and revenge culture makes us dispose of us, of each other, makes us dispose of some of our closest people, family, friends, and then also it makes us easy to dispose of someone like a Dave Chappelle or, or dispose of black trans women. Right. And so I think that there's this opportunity right now, with what I'm hoping for with many of us who've written books on abolition, Ruthie Gilmore, Miriam Kaba and Derricka Purnell just had a book that came out October 5th. And now my book's coming out in January. I'm hoping that we can build a new co- culture that's able to see conflict as generative, not as something that creates more harm and division. Do you
0: think that, that backlash and just like kind of cancel culture that you're you're I think that you're speaking about really I mean I feel like if you're black folks are quick to cancel you with any mistake or or you get backlash just easily why do you think that is though
1: you know, I think that when it comes to, to disposing of Black people specifically, all Black people, that has everything to do with the racism, point blank. It has everything to do with racism, about Black people are seen as less than, Black people are seen as as not deserving, not deserving of love and care and kindness. And so we're going to see that a lot with when it comes to, dispos- to disposability. And we're going to see it a lot when it comes to black women and black trans women specifically.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like our social injustices and just like our civil rights movements have taken a back seat during the pandemic?
1: No. Or do you think it's been not at all. I, I think it's been intensified. I think what we have seen is our movements have actually, you know, the the honestly the minute we knew a pandemic was happening, we stepped in. We stepped in and I know here at the local level, especially around incarceration and policing, like we were, we were on it. And at the national level, obviously, we saw an uprising happen during this pandemic. And mind you, an uprising that didn't create outbreaks. You know, didn't the uprising didn't actually create a su- there weren't super spreader events. Our protests, even though millions of people showed up, because we were. Mindful of the pandemic, we knew that Black people were being impacted by the by the pandemic at, at higher rates than white people, and so yeah, I think this this pandemic has actually really created a new place for us to be present for um, what's what's possible.
0: And when you say what's possible, what do you what do you inv- like? What do you mean?
1: One when, when the pandemic happened and quarantine happened in particular, I started to really talk about abolition. Mm -hmm. And I started to really talk about why abolition was so necessary and why it was so important and why in this moment we could start dreaming of a new world and why, you know, during this time, like we're going to see so much ending. I was just reading about employment rates, how many people have left their jobs. People are tired of of working the kinds of Mm -hmm. jobs that they had to work, you know, pre-quarantine. People know what it feels like now to have some set of flexibility Mm -hmm. You know, frontline workers, our essential workers, are exhausted. They're traumatized, and we we haven't changed. You know, we're coming back into um, real life, and I'm like, man, we didn't take the opportunity to really dig into abolition, and so we have to keep dreaming. We have to keep imagining a world where all of our needs are met, where we all get to experience dignity.
0: Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what sparked you creating your show Resist on YouTube Originals? Like, how did that come
1: about? Yes, yes. Um, we created Resist because we wanted to respond to. We wanted to show people what it looks like to organize, what it takes to organize. We wanted to give people the opportunity to see a show where you know people were were on the ground and truly creating a new infrastructure for a city and for for a place. And so that's definitely why we, we you know, me, Mervyn Mercano and Dream Hampton executive produced um, Resist.
0: And how how often is it going to come out? Like, what are some of the topics that
1: you guys cover? So Resist was just a limited series. It's on the YouTube Originals now. And we really look at, you know, we, we follow a few local organizers here in Los Angeles. And we also look at the role of ending the the jail expansion here in LA, which we, at the end of the series, it looks mm-hmm. like we lost, but, you know, plot twist, we won and we, we would win a year later. We would stop the women's jail from being built. And then we would stop, you know, we stopped the mental health, the quote, mental health jail.
0: I remember that for, I don't know if that was like the first activation
1: Yes. with
0: Resist LA. Remember we guys like made the, the jail beds oh, outside of, was it the county? Was, the first was it the conference? courthouse? Which one was that?
1: It was not the courthouse, but it was the county board of Supervisors
0: thing. Yeah, Patrice had me out here in these streets, okay? <laughs> Y'all know I don't be out here like that. But she had me out. <laughs> she had me out there. But I mean, I think I think that's the I think once people get to know you, they hear your story, they hear how passionate you are about advocating and fighting for the rights of others. You encourage them and inspire them to get involved. I mean, that's honestly what happened with me. I was, because normally Drina would not, okay? But Patrice was like, yeah, we're building like jail beds outside of, like in your LA way. We're going to be dealing with school beds outside. I mean, it was a whole thing. I've never seen anything like it. How many beds was it? Was it like a hundred?
1: It was. It was 100 jail beds that we created.
0: She had like... People selling candles. It was just a whole thing. And those <laughs> white people were not
1: prepared. <laughs> <laughs> they were not prepared. Till this day, I think that that was my best activation ever. Like 100 jail beds. It was epic. We got, really, you know, many people to volunteer their time. Yes, that's my best activation. My most exciting mm-hmm. activation.
0: Nobody got arrested. It was like hella organized.
1: It was hella organized.
0: How important is it for you to connect with up and coming activists? Cause I feel like that activation, you just saw, I just saw you in a different element and I saw so many younger people than you and I really getting involved and, and they were looking at you like a leader. So how important is it for you to, you know, connect with, Younger activists who want to get involved, like you were at age sixteen to seventeen.
1: It is so important for me to connect with younger activists. I feel so connected to younger activists. I so I feel so proud of them. I remember being a young activist and wanting, you know, support and wanting someone to connect to. And so there's there's a there's a bunch of young people that I've been working with and, and really supporting. T- Tiana Arada is one of them. You know, the young woman out of San Luis Obispo who's facing almost, I think, 13 misdemeanors right now for her activism. Obviously, Tendiwe Abdullah, Melina mm-hmm. Abdullah's daughter, and so many other young activists um, all, the, all the students from Students Deserve. I love all of them.
0: Mm-hmm. What's a day in a life like for you now, P?
1: It usually looks like waking up, taking, getting my kid ready, taking him to school, and then it looks like coming home working you know i'm I'm doing a lot of pitch meetings and meeting a lot of people inside of Hollywood entertainment around. Around my work with Warner Brothers and, and building out this TV film slate.
0: Hollywood.
1: Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> it looks like working on Crunchyroll Dairy Mart and, and supporting the work there and really developing the Dairy Mart as an art institution inside of Inglewood and in South Central. It also looks like taking care of myself, like drinking a lot of water. I have my green juice here with me right now. You remember all my green juice? Of like, course it, you I'm, do.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> some things don't change. Maybe. Yeah, Patrice used to
0: get on me. But it really don't. It really don't. Because I remember you used to get on me so bad when we were on your book tour. And you were like, you got to get a green. You need some ginger. You just used to have all these holistic, organic, LA shit that you were just trying to recommend me. So, of course, you'd have your damn green juice next to you right now. <laughs>
1: Yes. It's, um, I, it's, it's life, you know, green juice is life. I can't help it. So yeah, bro, you know, I'm really grateful for the work I was able to do at black lives matter. And I'm so glad that there's new leadership there. You know, it's, it's been really powerful to see this, that team really develop, but I'm, I'm excited to be on my new journey and be doing the work that I'm doing now.
0: I'm excited for you. I'm really, honestly, P. am really truly proud of you. You are so multifaceted. You're super talented and intelligent. And I just, I'm happy that folks are getting to see another side of you, of like who you truly are, because you know, the media will paint you. You know, I, I work in this space and you've done this shit for how, however long, but the media can paint you however they want to paint you. And I'm just glad that folks get to see who you truly are. One thing I want to ask is like, what are some of the common misconceptions about you that have been floating around out there? I know there's been a lot, but is there like (laughs) two that you're just like, I don't understand where they got this shit from?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, first (laughs) it was that I was a terrorist. And then then they realized that that wasn't going to stick. Now, you know, I think the most recent shit is that because I'm a Marxist, I can't, I can't have property and homes. And yeah, I think it's important that, you know, I don't, I don't really talk about this with, (laughs) with many people, but you so it's important you you know you met me in, in one of my first homes and
0: that's why I was like what the hell I was like, <laughs> I was like where Girl. the hell did I getting this information from I'm like I've been in this house okay that's so crazy
1: <laughs> yeah you know I think it's the it's it's what the right wing does to manipulate communities and people and I think one of the one things I just want to name is like home ownership in the black community is so critical and important for generational wealth and for being able to provide for the next generation. And number two, I think it's important for people to know that, Should never be ashamed of being a being a homeowner, and it should never feel shameful. There's so many Black women activists, leaders who are homeowners, and thank goodness, um, we are often the ones that take care of our whole families. And so, it took a lot out of me this year. You know, the the kind of lies and the misinformation, the disinformation spread about me. But I also will say that that's what comes with the territory of being a leader, and that's what comes to the the territory of of being you know, of being seen as someone who is powerful. And it's my, it's important for me that I don't let, let them, you know, the government, right-wing media decide who's powerful and decide, decide. It's important for me to not let right-wing media take away my power. Um, That's so important. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I feel like sometimes folks will get into the spotlight and not fully understand what comes with that, the good and the bad. And unfortunately, you know, there's been a lot of bad shit thrown you away, but there's also been a lot of amazing things that have happened for you where you've been able to fully support your family, make sure they're safe. So, like, I just, I'm really, I'm really happy that you said that because folks don't understand, like, you come into this this space, this is what's liable to happen, but you got to know how to deal with it and know that regardless of what happens, they can't take away your power. That's right. Cause I remember you used to be going on TV and you'd be like, I want to say, and I'm like, P, I don't know. I'm like, no, I'm saying this. And you said it. <laughs> and it was fine. We dealt with it. You know, uh, <laughs> would you say there's been a roadmap to how you got here? To where you are today? No,
1: no, right. There's no roadmap. I, I wish there was. You just have people who can can hold space for you, uh, but no roadmap.
0: And what would you tell anyone that's looking to get into activism?
1: Find something that you feel excited about and feel solid about, and then show up for it, and stay consistent and be present for it. But all while doing that, make sure that you have your own team, family, community, and be present for, for your, your family and community and don't let the world of activism, you know, make you lose yourself. It's really easy to, to give to everybody else in this work. And I think it's important to stay connected to yourself and your needs as well.
0: If you could tell your 20 year old self, one thing, what would it be?
1: Your magic, bitch. Magic.
0: (laughs) Who's one person that inspires you?
1: Harriet Tubman. All day, every day. Harriet.
0: We are not fighting for the right to others. What are you doing?
1: <laughs> Making art. And twerking.
0: And the last, what are you currently reading?
1: I'm currently reading The Last Black Man in San Francisco, like a 24 book that they put together, like a graphic book. It's really beautiful.
0: Ooh. Okay. Well, thank you, Pete. You know, I love you. I am extremely grateful that God has connected us. Uh, we are forever entwined. Yeah. And I'll always be here for you. So thank you for joining me today.
1: I love you, fam. This is great. You're the best. Let me know when you're coming to Los Angeles. It's too cold in Jersey <laughs> now.
0: It's really not. It's 70 degrees today. Ah.